Hi, I'm Jacob Kim. And I'm Liam McPherson. It's the newest edition of your plumber's favorite podcast. Speech from from the the throne. Throne. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest from the halls of power. But not another report from the gas pumps. We're just here to argue. Hey Jacob, what are we talking about today? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Liam. I think it's the same thing that everyone's been talking about for the last uh, couple weeks now. And that is the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And my spin on this is, I think we've been sort of learning the wrong lesson uh, by Mm. the deluge of stories about the the bravery of the Ukrainians fighting on the front line, all these images of of, uh, Vladimir uh, uh, Zelensky. And perfectly good reason to do so. He's a very captivating figure, this president of the Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are are fighting very well as underdogs against uh, the Russians. Right. But all of this, in my mind, could have uh, very easily been avoided uh, had the Ukrainians not been pressured by uh, not just the Russians, but also the Americans and the British in 1994 to give up uh, their nuclear weapons. And uh, I find it very weird, almost like a, a hallmark of a past age, to see uh, these journalists, and, and particularly, I'm more disturbed by generals uh, or uh, ex-military types going on political commentary shows talking about how we need to beef up our military to buy more planes, buy more jets, buy more frigates, buy more tanks. In what, 20 and, years? Uh, well, I- exactly. And... Uh, it feels like we're we're fighting the last war in a very serious way. Like uh, we need to be serious about who we are as a country and what Canada is actually capable of doing. And I, I'm sorry to say this, Liam, but Canada by itself is a very small country. It's true. And there's just no number of tanks we can buy or airplanes we can build or uh, ships we can. Uh, supply that are ever going to be able to sustainably defend such a massive country uh, as this one. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk now of how, like, Russia, in many sense, does border Canada against the Arctic, and they could always uh, try to invade here. And, of course, we have the eternal threat of the Americans, who did invade in in 1812. And, you know, we, we have to always be worried that the same thing could happen again. These two countries, if either of them ever came into contact with us, would immediately destroy any defense we could conceivably create. But there is one military procurement that I think that Canada could actually invest in to defend its independence. And it's the one thing that no one seems to be naming. And I find that very odd. And that is that that is a nuclear deterrent. Hmm. Canada used to be a world leader in nuclear technologies. Uh, we were the first, one among the first to build uh, nuclear reactors uh, for electricity. We helped India inadvertently build uh, their first nuclear weapons. We donated the plutonium uh, that they used to build their, their nuclear weapons. And we have the largest reserves of uranium in the world. We're the second largest uranium producer right now. This, Is that right? It, it's very true. And we also need clean energy to help us off our fossil fuel dependence. And the, the nuclear weapons and, and nuclear energy are very much tied together. They're usually worked in sync. I think this is one of our greatest... If we're trying to uh, defend ourselves against a, 
uh, a foreign incursion, that's really the only investment we can do that would actually uh, ensure our independence in the long run. There's just no right. other conventional uh, weapon that would that would serve to, to do it. And uh, I, I think as well, when people are talking about uh, you know building up our defense spending, we seem to be forgetting that like <laughs> our our army is filled with rapists. Like we we have all these stories of sexual assault at the very top of the command yeah. structure, and then even the people that have never done anything wrong in their lives, they're part of a horrible, horrible procurement process. They're some of the worst bureaucrats, or, or like the least, the most incompetent system we've ever seen. And this, so so it's like your choice in the Canadian military is either you're governed by a sexual assaulter or you're uh, you're under a completely a, a disgustingly uh, in, inappropriate uh, procurement process. And this is the system uh, we want to reward with billions of dollars in spending. I say, no way. We scrap the whole thing. It's never going to be reformed. We invest everything in nuclear now to defend our independence. Because that's the only investment that's ever going to pay off in the long run. If we go back down to fighting the same wars with the same weapons, we're just going to give these, again, rapists who many of them are hiding in the ranks of our uh, of our elite officers we're giving them uh, all of the uh, prestige that they are uh, that they're desiring and they're not going to they're not going to learn to be better humans they're in fact going to think that they're being rewarded for the behavior and i just think that's totally unacceptable okay well i have a lot to say about that uh, good and bad but before we get started we want to disclose that we are both Canadian federal public servants. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours alone and do not reflect the opinion of the government of Canada. Um, but to get into it, I mean, so I, I was going to interject there, but I wanted to let you uh, to, to finish your spiel. Um, you know, my first thought was, what about all of the treaties that that we signed 30 years ago that nations across the world signed to disarm in terms of their, their nuclear uh, components, you know, this is something. This is a push we've seen since the post-Soviet era, and while in many respects there there are a lot of arguments to be made that we've been in a, a new Cold War for quite some time, I wonder if, I mean, number one, you know, a my first thought is what about all the treaties? B my second thought, it's what about cyber warfare? Because really, more than ever, that's the main that's the main um, theater for the this kind of conflict, um, and C. You know, the procurement process, as you noted, I, I this is one point I agreed with, has been broken for decades, decades. And we we, we saw big defense cuts uh, under the, the liberals in the 1990s. Um, and then we, we saw, you know, the Blues get elected in 2006 and they said a lot of nice words about the military, but they didn't significantly do things differently either. Uh, and as you were saying, you know, the bureaucracy gets in the way and you and I are both bureaucrats. We, we know sometimes how onerous processes can get in the way of what we're, what we're trying to do. And, um, you know, we, we love our jobs, but, um, it's a reality, especially with, with policies like the procurement, uh, policy, uh, that Canada has in place. So I guess, you know, you say, let's scrap the procurement policy, but the reality is, there are public servants in in DND and Department of National Defense that are are going to one way or another have one one thing to say or another about whatever we do next, whether it's procuring flights uh, or flights, whether whether it's procuring planes rather or not. Uh, and I I I foresee 
a future where not only are conventional weapons and, and possibly even nuclear weapons not as needed as they once were, but that cyber warfare will become the main theater of battle. And so I wonder how what you just said kind of fits into that. Maybe you can clear that up because I, I have some, some hesitancy. Well, I guess uh, my opinion on, on cyber warfare is I think it's been a, a little bit uh, overdone. I mean, like the Ukraine definitely is not investing anywhere near as much in cyber uh, protections as Canada is. And yet uh, it's facing against Russia, which you know everyone believed had the most advanced cyber warfare technologies uh, ever um, conceived. And yet the, Russia seems to be entirely stalled out in, in taking over. You know, and, and let's be honest, like uh, Ukraine has been treated almost like it was a third world country for, for quite a while now. Like it, mm. their, their, their infrastructure is completely uh, falling apart. And, uh, and, and yet Russia can't, uh, can't seem to, to deal the knockout blow. I think there's been a, a lot of over uh, hype in this. And, uh, and, and the reason for that is I, I think we've sort of bought into a, a Silicon uh, Valley talking point that everything is going into... Um, Everything is going online. Everything is about uh, uh, new technologies, uh, AI. There's certainly huge uh, investments being made in these in these technologies. But now is the time that we would have seen them deployed. And I'm I uh, I haven't been convinced that we're as far behind on this uh, uh, as as we are. And I think more importantly is I I don't really see if we are behind how we can ever catch up. Because, you know, you and I both work in, in, in government and we've seen there's a huge lack of, uh, of cyber analysts, of, of cyber secure, security people, of uh, just, just basic uh, software engineers. And we don't pay enough, we don't pay even close enough to attract uh, these type of people uh, to, to the government. We'd have to, com I really don't see how we're ever going to be able to build up uh, a capacity uh, that we could fundamentally uh, protect ourselves from from this type of warfare. I think if we're if we're going to f if we're going to focus on uh, a weapon where we actually have a chance of defending ourselves in an equal playing field, it's 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 only the nuclear one. We'd really have to build our own Silicon Valley essentially uh, to be considered um, even close to uh, uh, on par. Uh, with our adversaries, and that's basically what what China's done with the city of of, of Xinjiang. They they've tried to build their own Silicon Valley to defend against the Americans. We just don't mm -hmm. have that sort of capacity. So I would I, I would give up and and, and invest in, in somewhere uh, entirely different. That's that's why I discuss the nuclear thing. Well, I mean, so there are you know I'm not I certainly don't mean to um, uh, downplay the effectiveness of of nuclear. In, in some facets of Canadian life, uh, you know, particularly in Ontario, where there were coal plants running for years and years and years, and they finally shut those down and largely replaced them with hydroelectric uh, power and, and, and nuclear power is another uh, component. And Germany had a, a, you know, has had a huge push towards that in recent years. And it's, it's certainly something, I don't think it's, it's gotten as wide adoption as everybody like once thought, but it's definitely like been a useful crux in the, the, the transition away from uh, fossil fuels and, and non-renewable sources. 
with with the weapon stuff my my you know the nuclear weapon stuff my hesitancy is <clears throat> i mean i'm a bit of a a pacifist in the sense that i mean like yes nukes have been used in attacks uh they haven't substantively been used in attacks in almost whew, 80 years um it's been quite some time they nukes have certainly been tested and, and exploded but for good reason i think nukes just haven't been used because of the um uh what's the word i'm looking for the um, mutually assured destruction behind possessing nukes and uh you know it's it's difficult to see a future where particularly in the 21st century where we start directing towards nukes again as something that we want to build uh i mean maybe we'll build a few kind of to have on hand because we've seen clearly that and and i agree with this, your observation there um it's playing a role in the fact that that ukraine is getting attacked i think maybe if they had nukes there'd be that mutually assured destruction thing going on exactly but it's hard to so so you're you're bang on there but it's hard to justify let's build like it's hard to justify let's ramp it up to 1980s levels i could i could see you know maybe we should have a few on hand kind of thing but like past that it's hard for me to see how we should just kind of go all out nuclear uh, nuclear again and to to get back to your to counter your point there about the cyber warfare certainly in terms of like like i think when people picture cyber warfare maybe not everybody i feel like but some people picture like I don't like like hackers from the movies mm -hmm. like and I, I say hackers in quotes and you see like the green text flashing on the screen and they're moving their hands really fast but they're really doing nothing at all um and I think a lot of people picture that when they think of cyber warfare but the the trouble is is it's a lot more sinister because it's a lot harder to track the people who are perpetuating it oftentimes you have you know third parties or you have right wing or left wing grifters who are trying to make a name for themselves by um, spreading misinformation and disinformation on behalf of a, a sovereign state. So with Russia, you've got a number of uh, right-wing figures in the United States that have been drawn into this misinformation and disinformation campaign. Like Candace Owens, I saw a tweet from her today uh, and, uh, questioning details about these alleged, you know, uh, um, laboratories in Ukraine that are being used for chemical reasons and all this BS and um, that they've got all these diseases in there that could be released at any time among the world. And like, which was quick, it was quickly fact-checked by Justin Ling, a, a great freelance journalist who was like, okay, first of all, these pathogens are of known diseases. Um, there have been a couple of cases that where they've had to destroy some of these pathogens at these labs, but for the most part, they keep them securely contained and it's, it's nothing that isn't out already out in the world. It is not being used to develop bioweapons or chemical armaments of any sort but you know candace owens picked it up and tulsi gabbard who is a democrat uh only a name picked it up and it's uh nefarious you know a lot of the same circles uh amongst the truckers that were in downtown ottawa about a month ago um are picking up on pro-putin messaging as the truth and mm. leaping on ukraine and that's where it's a lot more nefarious is you know, things like that, where it's slowly but surely and dramatically, as we've seen in the last decade, increases the amount of misinformation and disinformation that people believe to be true. Um, and just, just to elucidate something for our, our listeners, I use two terms, misinformation and disinformation. And misinformation is something that is uh, false. And it's not always spread to deliver it, deliberately deceive. It could just be somebody who doesn't kind of have their facts straight and they're sharing information that's incorrect, and then it gets widely uh, reposted. Disinformation is often, well, is deliberate. Um, 
misinformation that is intended to hurt, to harm, and to deceive. And both play a role in cyber warfare. And the reason I find that, I think the reason I find it so much more nefarious than I used to is particularly in the last five, six years, the amount of, of time we spend on our phones, whether it's on TikTok or Twitter or not Facebook so much anymore, but even Reddit, um, you really, really have to have a critical eye at everything you're reading and looking at who it's coming from, who the who it's coming from, who they know, you know, that, that could be using them as a conduit, either willingly or unwillingly to spread uh, disinformation or misinformation. Uh, and it's... Uh, it's quite troublesome because we all have access to these devices. Twitter only now is just barely starting to attempt to fact check where now they've kicked a few nefarious uh, bad actors off off Twitter. But it's still very easy to read something on social media and share it and have no idea really what you're sharing or saying. Uh, and so I think that's what makes it nefarious to me. And that's why I think that's sort of the true theater of war and why nuclear weapons... Sure, they maybe assure you some guarantee of security against other countries that have them, but it's not going to stop what happens online that is so destructive. I think uh, our experience in politics and in uh, strategic communications courses is there's a pretty clear lesson. It's not fact checkers. It's not investments in, in, in frigates. It's not uh, cybersecurity experts uh, that will counter misinformation or disinformation the only thing that counters a narrative is another narrative and uh, I, I think that this um, experience that um, ukraine has undergone since 2014 during the annexation of, of the crimea of uh, a, a russian separatist uh, aggression in eastern ukraine is that you've seen you know since the the late 90s there has been a a huge Russian uh, uh, misinformation campaign in the, in the Ukraine, but it was only in 2014 that Ukraine, and after 2014, after the Maidan Revolution, that Ukraine really got its act together in um, building its own narrative nationally to counter uh, Russian propaganda. Uh, before then, they were really sitting on the fence between uh, whether they want to, to move more west facing, whether they want to uh, remain with their historical allies in the Russians. Um, and uh, of course, it was also a, a highly uh, corrupt system, a really inept government. And so sure, it's not that it's not that Russian misinformation was particularly convincing. It's just that there was nothing else truly to believe in. Uh, in in Ukraine, there wasn't uh, a very strong cultural uh, a narrative that existed uh, that that could uh, build any sense of cohesion besides what the the the, the BS the, the Russians were spitting. But in 2014, once the once the Russian threat really solidified, you've seen this uh, remarkable uh, transformation in their society, where they, they have a much stronger sense of, of what Ukraine is as a country, who Ukrainians are uh, yeah. as a culture, and it's very distinct 
uh, from Russia. Yep. I had one of my Ukrainian friends over for dinner uh, uh, last Sunday, and you know he was even talking to me about how he he's claiming that uh, you know Russians are not true Slavs. That uh, you, you know everything oh everything good about Russia is actually truly Ukrainian. And the, the, mm. these are these are very interesting uh, statements that I don't know you'd necessarily be hearing from ordinary Ukrainians, uh, you know, ten twenty years ago. Um, right. And now it's uh, it, it's completely flipped on that head on its head. I think Canada needs to do the same. We have been lost for many, many, I would say maybe even more than a century, but certainly many decades in not having our, our own way in the world. There's, I think the reason why misinformation is uh, is so potent here is because the lines that our politicians are, are giving are, are such... They're, they're obviously empty. They appeal maybe to, yeah. to very specific target populations, but there's, there's no national dream, no national ambition, no vision that can uh, actually uh, coalesce the entire Canadian population. Because we're, I think, honestly, we're afraid to have that uh, discussion about what Canada truly is. And so we choose, to be, we choose to be, we're not fully America, but we're... You know, we're we're all the good parts of America, but none of the bad parts of America, and it's just it's such a weird and, and frankly um, cowardly uh, footing to have. And so, uh, I think I think a big part of of uh, building our own uh, national identity would be you know a willingness uh, to go our own way in the world. And right now, we we really we really don't. Uh, we, our foreign policy is uh, entirely um, what the Americans uh, want us to do. We, we, we just basically, we take, the, we take the White House's press statements, but we release it with uh, softer language and two months too late, essentially. Um, the reason, and, and our allies in Europe, you know, I work, in, I work in, in global affairs. Our allies in Europe do not like us very much. Uh, I, there's a, I'm not going to... Uh, talk about specific instances because that might get a little too carried away into sensitive information but the, the yeah. i can recall many many instances where we have been humiliated uh by our allies in europe because they hate this this line that that we've been uh adopting more and more like we used to be a country that um was willing to play footsie a little bit uh with with the united states but also with other powers and we've That's gravitated right. so far away from that I, that the rest of the world is starting to despise us a little bit. In particular, our, our reliance on fossil fuels is, is a reason why uh, our European allies don't like us very much either. Anytime Canada is mentioned in those countries, there's always you know, huge protests against our, our oil sands. Um, and the reason I think why Europe is so willing and is very, particularly France right now under Macron, is so willing to uh, move away from the United States to chart their own policy is because they have that nuclear deterrent. France has its own nuclear weapons. They don't. They would like the United States to defend them, but they don't need the United States to defend them. And they're building. And, and you have uh, announcements from Germany building their uh, building their military again. So this is why I think that Canada, we sort of, we have this sense that the Americans are going to protect us, and so uh, we have no reason to contrast ourselves with the Americans, because in a sense we we think of ourselves as being still a colony of, of theirs, and uh, this is the sort of thinking I, I think we need to fundamentally change. Until we have our own narrative, 
uh, until we have a sense of pride, of individuality in what Canada is by itself, I think we're going to be the, the victims of these sorts of uh, uh, misinformation campaigns because we, we have nowhere to look to, there's no voice to turn to, there's no one to listen to. So of course we're going to listen to you know whatever BS the uh, the far right from America or the or, or Russian uh, um, uh, 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 hackers are, are are sending us. There's there's nothing else to read really in Canada. Mm. Hmm. So you you raise a few good points. Um, your first good point for sure is so you you highlighted that you had a Ukrainian friend visit, and you were you were covering the whole bit that you know post maiden revolution. Uh, the Ukrainian identity became stronger in centuries than it ever had been. Uh, and you are bang on um, when you highlighted what your Ukrainian Fred, friend said about, um, you know, Russians not even being true Slavs and blah, blah, blah. It, it definitely, you know, the thing with Europe and particularly in Eastern Europe is you had these tiny independent kingdom kingdoms, um, that at one point or another, you know, joined or left other empires, but you have, you have all these tiny, tiny kingdoms with with distinct identities who were swallowed up by the Soviet uh, Republic and by Yugoslavia and, you know, uh, Czechia and Slovakia were one country at one point and blah, blah, blah. And they were held together under the narrative of, you know, taking the chains off the workers or whatever, which turned yeah. out to be a load of, you know, but, um, you know, all that to say that sort of temporarily kind of sedated them from focusing on their own kind of ultra-nationalist whims. And I say ultra-nationalist because Eastern Europe is, is quite a nationalistic place and particularly Slavs are, you know, convinced, you know, not, this isn't to say all Slavs, but like there's, there's a cultural narrative in a lot of Slavic societies that they are, you know, they're fellow Slavs, you know, some of them aren't true Slavs because of this, and some of them aren't true Slavs because of that. And it's very much like the Russian narrative. Well, Ukraine was always part of us anyway, and Ukraines are really Russians, you know, and, and it almost, that in itself parrots what your Ukrainian friend said to you. And there's similar rhetoric out of China to give an, an Asian example of, well, you know, Taiwan is a wayward uh, province and blah, blah, blah. And it can't have its own distinct identity because X, Y, Z. And so that's, it's, it's great. You know, I think it's great to see Ukraine getting its own identity and it's important to form a national identity to um, convince the rest of the world that you are truly self-sufficient and, and to not fall, fall victim to that um, Russian propaganda. You have to pump out your own propaganda, which is what they've done. Russian warship, go F yourself and, and other uh, slogans are, are plastered on buildings all over the country uh, at bus stops and on, you know, and it's everywhere and it strengthens national resolve and, and, and national belonging. Um, what I worry about is that for many Ukrainians, this will turn them against Russians, how Russians have been turned against Ukrainians. That's the sad after effect of all of this. And then you get into the, these sort of like, you, well, you're not really ethnically like me. And so you're different. And so I'm going to other you. And then sometimes that turns to violence, like we saw in the former Yugoslavia. Um, so I hope, you know, like, yeah, there's violence happening now, but I just mean like, you know, you don't want this to start to be the start of a period of prolonged ethnic uh, upheaval. So that, but that was one thing that I liked that you highlighted. It was important to to mention. Um, and you're absolutely right when you're talking about Canada kind of being lost in the woods. Like, really, we've been lost in the woods since I'd say the '90s. Yeah. Where there's so many of us that believe the the national um, mythos, if you will, about well, we're peacekeepers and 
we did well in the world wars and you know our allies respect us and like that that was all largely true until about the 90s and then it started to kind of drift and um we we certainly were i think i think we were somewhat scared into um waking up to the global reality when donald trump was elected and burst onto the international scene like a bull in a china shop uh and and so i think that's been um that aspect has been heard i think that Canada is beginning to wake up, though, a little bit late to the fact that it can't always rely on the United States, particularly under a right-wing government, because the state of their right-wing politics is just a cesspool. Um, so, uh, but, I, but I mean, other than that, we have no particular direction. We have a, a prime minister that, you know, you and I were talking about this, it might have been a week or so ago, you know, we have a prime minister who um, I think initially was quite respected because they thought he was going, they thought he was going to be a paradigm shift for Canada back to what we used to be. And he talked a big game, but then he, he found out that governing, uh, at, you know, he actually needed to work hard on things to, to get things done that he talked about. And, uh, not to say the man doesn't work hard, but I feel like he works harder sometimes on his lines than on his policies. Yep. And, um, you know, we were talking about this a week ago where he was at this international press conference and, with um, Mark Root, the hope I'm pronouncing that right, the Dutch uh, Prime Minister, and Boris Johnson, the the British Prime Minister, and uh, Dutch journalists were remarking how empty Trudeau's lines seemed and how uh, he didn't answer questions. It's like it's not just like it's obvious to the uh, the average Canadian voter that we have nothing useful to say. It's it's now becoming uh, obvious to the average European, and uh, it's embarrassing, frankly. Frankly, and I think. You know, so you you those were the the points that you kind of made that I, I I definitely see where you're going for there. Um, the 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 France thing, you know, I, France has some nuclear weapons. You've mentioned that to me as well in the past, and um, a decent military now, and even Germany who who shredded a, a you know a, a non-aggression pact essentially. I, that's not what it's called, but essentially like they had just agreed to like not ever send weapons or all to any other nation like several decades ago and they broke that to send weapons to ukraine so we are seeing a paradigm shift and you talk about um our use of fossil fuels and i have to counter this i have to counter that point not because i think we should be using more fossil fuels but i think in in a week or so you know a week or so into the conflict we saw the conversation on particularly natural gas and oil change significantly from what it had been um and which i think could be could be bad news, but um, European countries are terrified now of being reliant on Russian gas. For years, they've been reliant on Russian gas. And Canada, in theory, has an opportunity to step in with its natural gas and oil. Um, I can't remember if it was, oh, it was Jonathan, I think it was Jonathan Wilkinson, the natural resources minister. So my minister, uh, and I can share this because he communicated this publicly, that we intend in some fashion to provide some natural gas. I don't think we intend to provide much oil, um, but I, we do intend to, to find a way to see if there's a way that we can get more natural gas to Europe. And we, we seem to be stepping up there. But And, that, and that's great um, from a diplomatic perspective, not as great from environmental. But all that to say, it's great we're helping our allies. You know, we, We've shown leadership in this crisis. Maybe it'll bring the allies back on side a little bit and respect us a bit more. But we still domestically lack a cohesive vision for the future. Um, and you and I talked about this in a bit of the podcast we didn't wind up releasing, where this government government in particular, um, and by the government I mean these politicians and this prime minister with the people in his office are very focused on sounding good, but not doing a lot of good. Uh, and 
I think the the, the sort of um, vacuousness of vision has allowed for guys like Pierre Polyev to step in and say, well, you know, here's this guy, he's spending a bunch of money, but he's not really accomplishing a whole lot spending that money. Don't you want more money in your pocket? And people are starting to listen, even though he said other just things that I disagree with. Um, and then you've got uh, Jean Charest, who is working on, and Patrick Brown, who just entered the conservative race today, uh, who are working on wooing ordinary Canadians back to the sort of center and, and saying, well, you know, you can have all the nice social stuff, the, the socially liberal policies with a fiscal conservative center. And I think both of those, I don't, I, I don't know yet which is going to prevail, like we talked about that last uh, episode, but I, I think, you know, it doesn't matter who prevails. They're both a threat to Justin Trudeau. They're both a threat to Canada because Justin Trudeau was expected, I think, to be like his father. And he wound up really not, not being anywhere close to his father in terms of actually getting things done and, and set, telling you what's actually on his mind. He just speaks in, in talking points and nobody wants to listen and nobody's inspired. And um, we're at a crossroads domestically, for sure. You know, it is interesting when you talk about uh, Trudeau and not living up to his father's legacy. When it comes to uh, someone that really put Canada on the map, like he was certainly our first, I'd say, celebrity prime minister. But uh, his celebrity really worked in, in, in a positive way for Canada. And he opened doors for us that I, I don't think anyone else would be able to, whether it was with, uh, with Castro in Cuba. He's also, I believe, the first... Um, Western uh, head of government to uh, visit China um, after right. it's yeah yeah, yeah uh, uh, after this, the communist takeover really paved the way for the uh, the Nixon Mao visit and, um, and and moving China more and more in the American orbit and Justin Trudeau instead has used his celebrity um, to humiliate us in many ways on the world stage like particularly. Like, like this is this is one of the few prime ministers of Canada that I think uh, citizens of other countries would um, be able to recognize and name, and yet I think still to this day the story um, that about his name that pops up most commonly in uh, foreign newspapers is still the blackface scandal. Um, yeah, and so that's one of those things where. That's a bad thing, but if he had an actual vision, if he had a, a message to say to the world, you know, that could have uh, overshone uh, the blackface scandal. The reason why, like, his name is still associated so much with with blackface internationally is because he's refused in every opportunity to, to change the channel. He hasn't put anything else out there, and that's a that's a major major problem. The one positive that uh, he has brought to Canada, in Canada's international relations is, I think, by empowering uh, Christian Freeland. And I've been very, very glad to see uh, basically Myself her. Myself as well. I think, I, think, I think we can call it as it is. And she's more or less taken over cabinet the first, uh, the first week of the uh, Ukrainian uh, crisis. I it think, seems like that, yeah. I, I think that if she had not been... Uh, in cabinet, in as powerful position as she is, under a leader as beleaguered as Trudeau, uh, Canada would not have been able to take 
as strong and as swift uh, a step as it did in sanctioning Russia. And and to be perfectly honest, like uh, you shared the stories with me, it, it seems like uh, Freeland has also been very aggressive in pushing our allies uh, to take a harder stance. Um, oh, she hasn't uh, stopped by the sound of it. Yeah, exactly. She was she was the warrior working the phones who really made this happen, particularly uh, cutting um, uh, Russian banks off of SWIFT. If we could just get that vision every day, rather than... Right? In, right yeah, exactly. Like if it's only uh, this one thing where Freeland had the clear moral major uh, the clear moral leadership because she's been talking about this issue forever. Um, because Her own background. Uh, yeah, exactly. The KGB hates her. Um, she's where Ukrainian. She could, she could very easily take over, and she felt that it was it was right for her to take over, and it it, it worked for us. We we're back on the map. So now Trudeau, look at this, please, Mr. Trudeau, look and see. You have this talented star in your cabinet that's finally put. Canada back in the discussion. Step down and hand the reins to her. Stop stealing the spotlight. Stop associating our country with your blackface scandal. Move on. Let the talented star that you have fostered take over. Now is the time. Step away. I think that's the lesson that has to be learned here. And we saw that when uh, Trudeau... Um, when, when Trudeau uh, uh, tried to take the reins again, the headlines are running away from us. Now it's the mm. it's now now it's uh, people are talking again about you know our failed procurement policy or because uh, again it's the classic move of Trudeau wanted to talk about uh, us you know um, building a, a bigger military presence and immediately journalists started asking what the hell are you talking about? You've made this promise seven times already and nothing happened. Because he just can't deliver. I know. So. And, and the amount of, I mean, I think the, the vacuousness of vision and the vacuousness of the way our leaders speak to us, it it started under not Justin Trudeau, but, but Stephen Harper and arguably, mm -hmm. well, I, I wouldn't say under Jean Chrétien. Like, yes, he led his, his caucus with, a, with a, an iron fist, but the, the extent to which lines were parsed to the point where they were soulless and you can't say anything about anything started with Stephen Harper um, and continued into the Justin Trudeau era because he saw how effective it was uh, for control of the message. However, the, the over obsession with control of the message is, is often to his detriment uh, to the point where he, again, he has nothing to say uh, other than he's surprised to find out that he should have been governing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, his, his lines come out sort of, you know, like your eyes just kind of glaze over when you're listening to them. And it's not because he isn't charismatic. In fact, I think it's that's one of his biggest skills. Uh, I think one of his biggest skills is he's able to connect with people on a personal level, but he doesn't use it. Um, instead, he gets fed these these lines. And, um, you know, you mentioned blackface, you know, that and that there could be a whole episode on that, yep. you know. And for me as a, a biracial man, it was a huge tragedy because there is an opportunity to have a national conversation about race. And we, we sort of did for a few days during the 2019 election, but then that was it. And another headline took over and, you know, and he's like, Oh, I'll do better. And like, here's 150 million for black uh, entrepreneurs. And yeah. here's, uh, you know, a lawsuit against us uh, by black public servants who feel they've been discriminated against. And uh, you know, his, his words, the trouble is he says a lot of fancy words but but they they never live up to the action and uh, I mean honestly not even his words are fancy anymore 
um, people are growing tired of this guy, and I think it would be very wise to to uh, give the reins over to, to Christian Freeland uh, or, or someone else like Anita Anand or somebody who's a little bit more, um, you know, human, <laughs> just yeah. for lack of a better word. Um, I mean, they could still run the same risk of being, you know, the classic liberal trope that uh, they, they, they associate their goals with the national direction and assume that they're the same thing. I mean, they could still fall victim to those those tropes. Uh, I would hope they don't, but like, gosh, it would certainly be better than what we have now. It would be better for the country if somebody you know, more more liked, more human, and and more competent was in power. Uh, and but but you know, I, I think, like I said, we could have a whole podcast about this entire issue and and his leadership, uh, or and you know, I think we should, uh, and uh, because I th- I think we will as the discussions heat more up about what his future looks like and. Um, in the meantime, I think we should we should shift it back to Russia, Ukraine in particular, um, because I, I want to get your thoughts on what you know. What do you think about where you know where do you think this is going to go? And I guess I'm asking you to speculate because nobody really knows where this is going to go. But you know, we we've just had a, a base in Ukraine attacked that was used heavily by by NATO to train Ukrainian soldiers. That's now been blown up. Russia's threatening to blow up. Uh, aid shipments coming into Western Ukraine. Where do we go from here? Because it seems like the West is doing everything they can not to provoke him, and he just keeps kind of treading further and further towards that that red line that is so often mentioned. Yeah, well, uh, it's a very disturbing um, news story because I generally don't foresee uh, any positive outcome. Well, I think that if uh, if everything goes well for Putin here, he's going to be encouraged to move farther, and eventually he's going to hit. He's going to hit somewhere where we care about. Like, let's be perfectly honest. Uh, we're not fighting over Ukraine. Like, we just there's nothing there that we care too much about. We'll have lines about. Uh, you know, oh, defending democracy, blah, blah, blah. They have some mm. wheat, but the, the, their wheat is important to the Middle East. Canada has, grows enough of it. We, we don't really care about the stuff the Ukrainians have. And America only fights war over stuff. It couldn't care less about defending, <laughs> the, uh, uh, defending democracy or saving people's lives. That's a, a good excuse when you need to invade, but it's never the reason uh, to invade. Eventually, though, if, uh, it, it, if Putin succeeds enough... Uh, he might push himself uh, into a country that uh, the Americans actually do give a shit about and then uh, will be dragged in uh, into a potential uh, thermonuclear war and end of all human civilization. Um, now, do you think that's likely, though? No. I think the way that Putin has uh, persecuted this war so far has shown huge weaknesses in his state. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just a corrupt... A kleptocracy is not a very good state in which to wage war, because when you when you appoint your friend, you know the 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 head of the tank division, when you appoint your <laughs> your nephew, uh, you know the the head of your nuclear de- uh, defense forces, those guys, uh, a they know nothing about what they're overseeing, and b their only goal is to make money. So it's like right. there's there, I'm uh, people have been saying this about the. Um, 
the Russian military for years is that the instant it ever fielded its army, they'd notice that, you know, someone has sold all their bullets or someone has sold <laughs> all their gas. And there's and we've seen that already uh, sp- uh, sporadically in uh, decreasing quality of their space shuttles in the uh, in the space program because it's been given it was given to corrupt France of the uh, of the president who you know they cut every possible corner and put the pot and put the extra in their in their money or the Sochi Olympics for example like the yeah. when they when they made uh, they spent unimaginable amounts of money to build these like horrible North Korea looking structures that were completely empty on the inside and it's because all the extra was skimmed and taken away that's not a very good state to wage a war and I think it much more likely is that these contradictions inside um, the Russian state are going to make themselves apparent and, and Putin's whole regime is going to collapse. But yeah. uh, I don't think that's going to be a, pos- a net positive for humanity. A, because if Putin sees himself um, completely losing power like, and he has his finger on the nuclear button and he thinks that's the only... That's the only card he has to play that he has any uh, surety of success. I think he would very easily nuke his own people to stay in power. I think he would nuke a lot of the world to stay in power. And even if somehow he is removed, Putin's done such a good job of uh, shredding his political opposition. There's no one that can really replace him. And I think a civil war to replace uh, uh, Putin in Russia would uh, end uh, just as likely in a, in a third world war as Putin succeeding in, in Ukraine and uh, moving across Europe. So it's like, I think win or lose, um, we're going to get sucked in here. The only, there's, there's, there, there's a very narrow window uh, for a positive outcome. And I think that's if some way, um, if somehow uh, Putin gets to his senses or the Ukrainians um, are willing to make a, a deal with Putin, agree to him that they're, that they're not going to join NATO and there's a detente. I think that's mm. that might be the most likely outcome, but with every passing day, as the as as more and more uh, Russians are killed, as Ukraine fights better and better, um, that that option becomes less and less likely. And even though that's the best option for Ukraine, um, that doesn't seem to be what they're actually working towards. Which is, it's I, I find a little bit disturbing, to be honest. That they that they don't some would say capitulate i think i think they're fighting it they seem to be fighting a uh a, a war that they they seem to be willing to think that they can win against the the russians um which it's not possible it's just not i'm not a military strategist but i i, I think it i think it's just a common sense reading is you can tell that they're they're outmatched they i think the ukrainians um they, they they should put up a good show and now is the time to be willing to make um um some concessions uh, you go to the, you go to the bargaining table strong uh but i'd say that this is the time that if you're going to preserve your state uh, now now is the time to uh, to keep as much of your country as you possibly can um cut a deal as you can i think that the i, I think that vladimir zelensky is a little bit he's parlaying on a a very very popular image in the West, hoping that that he can use that to to get enough weapons and support that he can actually win uh, mm-hmm. against Russia. And I think that's a that's a fool's errand. If he uh, in, like if he does win, 
it's a that's a really really bad day for the world like a, a russia that's humiliated in war like just just read what read about 1905 revolution the 1917 revolution a humiliated russia is a dangerous russia we don't want a humiliated russia i think the many ways the reason why russia is invading now is because they were so humiliated in the way that uh, the dissolution of the soviet union happened if we'd had something like a Marshall yeah. plan post breakup of the soviet union this all could have been avoided but we chose to we chose to poke the bear and uh, now we're left in a situation where uh, the good options are um, dwindling. They're dwindling. Well, I mean, and, and so what? So there's a few ways to look at this, which is what makes these things all the more difficult. And the first way you can look at it, you, you, you know, you can, t you can take a step back and you can go, well, you know, Russia was pretty embarrassed when the Soviet Union broke up because they used to, they, you know, it was a collapse of what was once a great empire. Uh, and they felt they had a weakened position in the world. They were in recession for like a decade and a bit. And Putin, uh, whether or not it was, you know, really partially or at all his doing, took credit for the economic recovery that ensued and has basically bankrolled that. He's used that to justify everything he's done to date. That and he'll bring them back to some essence of their former glory with these these terms like... Uh, I think it's Novo Russia, like New Russia. It's like you know he's he's hinting at this new Russia, this new Russian state, new, 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 and it's got this heavy colonialist tilt to it. And he, you know, he sends his tanks into Ukraine to expand it, and he sent his tanks into Crimea to expand it. And um, I think it's par for the course with this kind of guy. So that's that's one way you can look at it as well. You know, Russia's embarrassed, and they're more dangerous when they're embarrassed, and that's certainly true in this case and some of the historical examples you cited. However. You can look at it from another perspective, which is you've got a defiant Ukraine with a really a relatively inexperienced uh, president. You know, he was a TV star and actor before becoming president, very much like Donald Trump. So it's, it's quite a bizarre rise. And one of his TV roles was paying, playing fictionally the president on TV. And now he's the president of Ukraine. He's obviously quite charismatic. He's obviously quite good at, at rolling out his own propaganda to, to convince people of his side. Um... I think, you know, if you're looking at it from this other other perspective, you know, if if Ukraine can get enough weapons together and somehow, you know, pull a miracle off and, and beat Russia, you've got an angry Russia. But is that here's the question. If Ukraine goes to the table uh and and capitulates, uh you know, are like let's say it, you know, they capitulate, they go to the table, they say, All right, we're not gonna join NATO and, and they kinda settle on that, great. All that does, I think, is puts a soother in Putin for another year or two, maybe if we're lucky, as many years as it's been, eight years since Crimea, uh, and then he goes for another um, uh, another uh, ex-Soviet state, or maybe he goes for, you know, maybe he goes for the Baltics, or maybe he goes for, um, you know, Turkmenistan, or, or, or Kyrgyzstan, or, you know, one of the small ex-Soviet countries that would be easy for him to add to his collection. I feel like we've seen a man who has no regard for sovereignty uh, won't have any regard for sovereignty if Ukraine does capitulate. So the question then becomes, if that's Putin and if that's how he's been this whole time, you know, why would Ukraine ever, ever capitulate? That's the other side of things. Like, yeah, sure, Russia's angry when they're embarrassed. I feel like that embarrassment won't go away if Ukraine capitulates. It'll, it'll save... 
it'll let them save face because they've had a terrible bumbling start to this war. Uh, it's amazing the amount, the level of incompetence that they have shown fighting this war for a supposedly great power. They are still, they in sheer numbers, quite a great power, and they do outman Ukraine. And barring some sort of a miracle, it's unlikely Ukraine will win. But I feel like even if Ukraine, let's say you, uh, Ukraine doesn't capitulate and they lose and they become part of Russia, again, why would Putin stop there? Like it's increasingly seeming to be this existential kind of world order question where it's like, okay, we don't want to, we don't want to do a no fly zone, fine, because we don't want to start World War Three. But is some sort of conf, global conflict? either on a small scale or a large scale, inevitable with this guy. Like, if he's as unhinged, unhinged as you say he is, is is it not just inevitable? Well, I don't believe that, that Putin is unhinged. I think that the, the Hitler analogy is um, a well, very unfaithful one. No, you didn't, but it's, 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 it's all over the media uh, comparing Putin to Hitler. And I, I think it's important to unpack this. Because I, in many ways, I actually think Putin's more of an opposite to Hitler in that, like, Hitler was a, a really deranged person who was surrounded by intelligent people that could uh, realize his deranged vision. And um, Putin, I think, is actually a very intelligent person who surrounds himself by idiots who uh, won't threaten him personally. And mm, that's that's a good take. In many ways, so it's like, in many ways, like, Hitler is certainly a, was proved himself to be a very dangerous person simply because he was whole you know he was a crazy guy that held the reins to an incredibly powerful state whereas right. uh putin is a i think a very intelligent person who holds the reins to a very inept state and mm -hmm. i for that i think that his threat is uh very overblown because he's just a i think he's expend and i i think a lot of the the American talk about China being a threat is also uh, overblown in that same way. When you run an, auth an authoritarian state, you end up expending most of your energy uh, governing your state because you have to be constantly yeah. beating down uh, your opposition. Propaganda. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not propaganda. It's not just propaganda, but you're locking people up. Uh, you're always purging uh, the inner ranks because you 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 want to ensure that there's. Any any element that's organizing is always a threat, even if it's a friendly element. You can never allow any organization that isn't your organization. Um, so if Putin does uh, try to uh, um, install a new government in Ukraine, and I think this is becoming less and less likely, um, if he ever does win and tries to install a new government, he's going to end up spending all of his resources, uh, a lack of and a very meager resources that he has, uh, keeping. Um, that country together. And this is a guy who's already uh, extended his military arms into uh, Belarus to prop up that government. He's already moved in troops to Kazakhstan to prop up that government. This is a guy yeah. that's spread very, very thin. I just don't see uh, him being able to move um, much farther. I can see how he could press the, the nuclear button and, uh, and and try to ransom maybe uh, Eastern uh the Eastern Europe uh, into his own um, orbit, but I just don't. I, I don't see how sure. him moving. I, I don't think. I don't. I don't see a world where he's going to move his tanks um, um, west. It's, it's just not going to happen because this. He's too. He's too weak to 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 accomplish this. I hope you're correct. So it, that's why I think that the the Ukrainian situation. That the best option is, I I think just like 
talking about a, a, a conflict as if it's inevitable under Putin. Like maybe that's true, but Putin is 69 years old. He's going to die eventually. I think he's a guy that the world can afford to wait out. I think that what we need to be doing is a strategy that uh, contains Putin, not a strategy that... Def- so how do we contain well, him then? Well, I think Ukraine is like, uh, I, I think a simple capitulation is not a is not a, a, a huge feather in his cap at this point after all of the people that he has um, lost. I think that toting down the rhetoric in Ukraine producing a compromise that both sides can live with. And to be honest, a compromise that in, in a sense probably would hurt U- uh, U- Ukraine's national image a little bit is perfectly acceptable because I think the people around Putin have realized uh, just how bad the, the system is working. And they only need, they just need some time in Russia to organize a, a, an opposition. All the pressure is actually... It, all the pressure that's constantly surrounding Russia, all the sanctions, the military pressure, I think it's, it's it helps Putin stay in power a little bit because it uh, it doesn't it doesn't allow the breathing space for uh, his opposition to to coalesce into a, a single coherent um, organization. And um, yeah, so that, that's my position on that. I think uh, we need to take a little bit of a, a softer approach if we're going to actually achieve anything in that part of the world. Uh, because we're just it's an we, interesting because point. the other option is is taking a harder approach and a harder approach is the end of the world to be honest like there's yeah well yeah well i mean yeah but like so here's what i'll counter you with uh so let's say so you you paint a, a very good picture of, of putin is surrounded by a bunch of idiots who don't know what they're doing you know because of basic uh, basic nepotism and and the struggles of, of running an authoritarian government all of that is are, are good points, and uh, I didn't think of the effect that might have on destabilizing Russia's ability to fight a war. However, if Putin is as smart as you say, uh, at some point or another, he's going to get tired of those idiots, and he's going to bring in the next idiots, and then he's going to bring in the next idiots, and he's going to bring in the next idiots. And at, at some point, he'll bring enough idiots in, and this happens with every dictatorship. It takes a long time sometimes but there's going to come a point where they're going to be like okay like the citizens are going to they're going to see through it and they're going to or or if not the citizens opposition enough opposition politicians will see through it and they'll go okay you've brought in how many bumbos um and there there's going to be some sort of an, an uprising i don't know if it will be swiftly crushed particularly if they're busy in places like kazakhstan and ukraine and blah 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 um and and the up the upheaval, the social upheaval, and the uprisings will, as they often do, become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and will, I I think, swallow him up. I'm not saying that that's a certainty. I'm not even saying it's light. It's likely, but even dictators lose face in the public. Even dictators with the best propaganda machine in the world lose face with the public. We're already seeing early signs that. I mean, yes, Russian propaganda is working well enough that it's preserved a majority of Russians' faith in Putin, but we're seeing more Russians than ever protesting. Really, uh, definitely still a significant minority. But if Putin lives another 10 years, 15 years, because he's 69, he could, uh, that's enough time for that minority to grow into a larger uh, social movement against him. And there's going to come a point where someone will be in the right position of power or the right place at the right time to turn on him. Nobody is ever completely safe. And, you know, if, as you say, 
these, you know, this pisses him off enough and he wants to stay in power. Who's to say that in a desperate bid to stay in power that he wouldn't press the red button? So basically the round the roundabout point that I'm making is like yes, I'm I definitely just noted a lot of things happening that are have various amounts of likelihood of happening, but like it's not unforeseeable that he would do that. And if he did, you know, are we simply delaying the inevitable by sort of letting, if we do what you say and then let Ukraine be the sacrificial lamb, are we, are we just kind of essentially delaying the inevitable by not trying to, to take this guy out? And I'm, I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying that I'm ready at, at this stage to, to support any sort of intervention as of yet, but the way things are going, like, I, I don't know, it feels, it does feel like there's an inevitability to it, not in a Hitler-esque way, but just with how this guy is built. I don't see what the alternative is. Like if you, in, if you think that, that it's inevitable that he's going to uh, do something violent, okay. But if we try to take him out, we can also be certain that that's going to end uh, in something violent. And it's going to be much worse. Like, oh, I, absolutely. I mean, if, it's, if it's Putin's, uh, if Putin has a desperate, uh, a desperate last stand, I think that's going to be, in the end, less destructive to the Earth overall than the West intentionally trying to remove him. Like, I just, I don't really see what the what the mechanism is that we have that we that we can get rid of him. We can, uh, if if there, if there was some way where we could destroy all of their nuclear weapons. In a, in a first strike and then do a conventional war, like a World War II style um, total total war uh, uh, occupation of, of Russia to remove all of uh, Putin's elements and then a Martial plan to rebuild Russia and, and incorporate into the That into would be the extremely West. difficult, exactly. like for it's sure. Just, it wouldn't happen. And even, if, even in the best case scenario where we accomplish all of this perfectly and not a single nuke goes off and, and, uh, and you know, there isn't mass destruction, you know, China is right beside Russia. Are they really going to let us? Are they really yeah. going to let us replace Putin with a with a friend of probably the United not because they're they're exactly ex- exactly. So that's that's like so. But <laughs> I don't think the point I was just making was to advocate for that as the ideal solution. All I'm saying is that to me, violence seems to be inevitable in both circumstances yes you can argue on the scale of the violence as of right now of course it seems less likely that this is going to open up on a world scale for sure um but but i just have to make that clear i'm not saying for a minute that it wouldn't be violent and bloody and and disgusting and dreadful for humanity if even if the west did succeed at some sort of you know occupation campaign in russia and china just kind of stood by which they wouldn't um but i I guess the, the the roundabout point that i'm coming back to again is Okay, do you, how long is China going to sit back now if Russia gets embarrassed? What happens if Russia, let's say Russia doesn't get embarrassed and they finally pull it off in Ukraine? What happens if Putin goes, okay, I think I've kind of mastered the art of how this works. I'm not going to fuck it up like I did last time. Let's roll into Latvia or let's roll into Poland. or And there's no, again, of course, there's no signs yet that he's going to do this. He may not do this. He may realize he's not in a position to do this. But again, you, you and I are included in the people who were saying that he wouldn't invade Ukraine. And he did. So I just, I feel that the man is less predictable than we think he is. I do think he's smart. I do think he's surrounded by idiots, uh, sycophants for a, a reason. But I, I just don't see 
I honestly don't see any situation in which mass violence is preventable. Whether I do see situations in which nuclear war is preventable purely because no one has dared press the red button since 1945, but against another country. But uh, you know, I I do think there will be death on a massive, massive scale at a minimum in in Europe, possibly Eastern Europe, and 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 I I just I don't foresee. I don't foresee a good end to this, and and I I think he's all I'm saying is he's less predictable I think than than we, but just we perhaps of, once thought. Think of the way that the world has reacted to uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Like it, weirdly, China seems almost on our side uh, in this one. They yeah they're they're almost. getting they're getting there, and that's that's sort of the the realignment that I I know that's the realignment that I want to preserve. Because I think China's a much greater threat, but also a much more enriching partner than um, Russia could ever be. And if we can find a, sure. if we can find a way where we are taking the same issue as the Chinese and we don't feel like we're morally compromising, that's that's an incredible diplomatic win. So, and let's remember, like with all of the sanctions that are being pressed on Russia right now, they're going to be in. Exactly. They're Destroying going to be them. very, very, very reliant on the Chinese. They already have been for some time, but this is just is really pushing them farther uh, in, into that camp. If they if we can yeah. align uh, with with China, I think that can actually uh, prevent Russia from moving um, any farther in Europe. And again, Putin is uh, a famously frail person. There was a, I think it was in 2018, 2017, there was a few months where he wasn't seen in public. People were speculating that he had died and was just being covered up. I think this is a guy who is going to, his his time on earth is uh, very short. And I don't know if that's going to be a natural or unnatural cause, but I think that uh, planning for a future that sees a lot of Putin in it is a mistake. I don't think that uh, this is a guy that's going to be on the horizon very much longer. I think instead we have to plan of what's the world going to look like after Putin. And do we want a galvanized, angry Russia that, you know, even a democratic Russia could elect a extreme nationalist figure. They could elect a Hitler. They could, they, sure, exactly, they could they elect have. a Hitler type who could start World War III. Um we have to start thinking about how we're going to treat Russia post-Putin, how we're going to try to reintegrate them into some sort of global consensus. And if China is on our side, that's possible. It's possible to have a peaceful global consensus again. But it's just something that we'd have to compromise. We'd have to find a diplomatic solution. If we preemptively uh, declare war, thinking that uh, violence is inevitable, that... Um, Alignment with China is lost. It's lost. It's they're not going to be on our side when we're fighting. Well, I'm not Russia. saying we should just declare war. I'm not. I'm not saying we should just declare war. I'm. I'm sort of saying that you know at, at some point. Uh, well, certainly it's in this moment we shouldn't declare war. But at some point, depending on how things are progressing in the Ukraine, it, it could become a more uh, considered option. Uh, and to add to that, um, just to quantify a couple of things you said, you make a good point. China's been, you know, I we say on our side in quotes, or I say it in quotes, you know, on our side more on this issue than they've been yeah, on any yeah. other issue in decades. On our side, relative, um, yeah. and that's great to see. 
Well, yeah, relatively. And that's great to see. And it's great to see the cooperation. Uh, I don't know how long it lasts. It's great to see the cooperation. I think there's perhaps something of an appetite to have China as an ally to deter Russia. Sure. Uh, I don't think there is much of an appetite. And you and I have talked about this before to have greater alignment with China on most things. Um, at some point, we will have to definitely confront you know, we'll have to confront it again because they're getting more and more powerful economically and they're a bigger and bigger player. Um, but I think as much as we can avoid it, uh, I think we, we prefer to kind of keep ourselves at arm's length, uh, you know, away from, from China. Uh, whether or not that's the right call in the long run, I couldn't tell you. But, I, I you know, after two Canadians were arbitrarily detained, it's going to be hard in the short term to convince people that, that we can uh, that we can do that. Uh, or should do that. Uh, however, it is good to have their support on this issue in the sense that they'll listen to China because they're reliant on China for lots of things. So certainly if we can keep China relatively on side, that's to our benefit. Um, it, it, and it remains to be seen. I mean, they've reacted strongly enough at this. It remains to be seen whether they'd react strongly if he did go into Latvia or Poland or rather whether they just kind of sit by and go, well, whatever. You know, they're paying us money for X, Y, Z. We don't really care. I don't really, I don't know how they react because I didn't know how they were going to react with this. But there's just, there are so many, we're still so early days in this whole thing. There are so many what ifs. Um, maybe Putin doesn't have a lot of time left on the earth, but we can't bank on that. Maybe a, a, a democratic Russia, a future hypothetical democratic Russia would elect a despot or a demagogue. We don't really know that. There's a lot of unknowns. I mean, uh, right now it seems like our democracy is in decline. Maybe in 20 years there'll be a, someone will flick a switch metaphorically speaking and, and we'll have some great national achievement and it'll put us back on the incline. Um, you know, may somebody, somebody with vision might come in or they might not, you know, we don't really know how long this stagnation and this decline is going to last for. That's, that's the other key thing. So it's, uh, all very tricky and I, I don't, uh, envy the, the decision makers in power. Um, but I just wanted to, to sort of, to, to quantify the, qualify the two things that you said there, uh, with a little more context for, for, you know, from, from how it would go over, I think with, with, with the general public. I think my general partners. argument to, 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 tie everything that I've said in the podcast together is that the the solution to the the Russian crisis in in Ukraine I don't think it's going to be solved with bombs and planes and tanks I think it's going to be saved with investment with uh, a diplomatic relationship with us going into Russia as partners in a future without Putin and treating them uh, as partners in, in a new world order, we cannot go back to the same way of you know NATO versus Russia slowly encroaching against them, treating them like a threat. We need to do as we did with Germany, as we did with Japan post World War II, where we invest big time and bring them into our sphere. It's not. This is not going to be ended yeah. with a bunch of dead Russians. This is going to be ended with a bunch of living no. Russians who love uh, the West because uh, they have uh, grown uh, to accept and adopt our values, as many Russians I know personally have done. It's a, something we can do, but it yeah. only can be done with investment, with willing to do the hard, the hard discussions, the difficult, uh, the difficult talks, the difficult 
and a, a lot of money, to be honest, is going to need to be spent. But not on bullets, yeah. on banks, on roads. Well, I mean, you, you know, we, to, to elucidate your, your argument mm-hmm. a, little, a little bit more, um, Japan is another post-war, post-World War II example of uh, something mm-hmm. of a miracle. You know, they had lived a very traditionalist way of life, uh, a very uh, colonialist way of life, not dissimilar from China in many respects. They had a complete pivot of thinking, not by their own choice, but due to losing the war. Um, but it worked out in their favor when in the 70s and 80s they became a massive technological superpower. They still are to this day. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not that Japan is going to run to America's defense for everything they ever do. But they're certainly in the sphere of conversation. As you cited, Russia can be in the sphere of conversation. I fear that that is... I mean, if the sanctions work as intended, maybe it cripples Russia's economy enough and we have some movement kind of on on bringing them into the the sphere. Um, I I still do not think the solution is to to just build as many nukes as we can because that in many respects is going back to the whole us versus them kind of shit that got us embroiled in stuff the first place in the first place and uh um you know it's it's gonna be difficult to bring russia into the sphere without some sort of economic or military victory you're right i don't think it ends with a bunch of a bunch of dead russians i do think the situation where we roll tanks into russia and occupy them is is very unlikely uh, extremely unlikely. I think if there was a war declared, it would probably be fought with nukes and sanctions, and like it'd probably look very different from the conventional warfare we've seen in the past. And uh, you have also sort of touched on that. Um, but I don't know. I I, I don't. It's a, it's a really difficult one. It's it's confounding. Uh, I I think the sensible thing is to bring Russia into our sphere for sure. I just I don't see if Putin lives another 10, 15 years, and then somebody comes in power that's not a change maker, like not a Gorbachev. Maybe it's a Leonid Brezhnev. Maybe they continue the line of uh, Putin. Maybe they're not Putin, but they continue that line. Like it, there's just so many ifs that could get in the way of even it's that. It's just that I, I don't think it really matters um, who is in charge of Russia. I think a lot of this is uh, Russia's response to the way that we have treated them. And a country needs something to be proud of. Yeah, how they no, perceive not just how they perceive their it. treatment. Like, to, let's let's be honest here. Like, we uh, uh, any country needs to be proud of something. It, it, they can either be proud of something good. They have a lot to be proud of. They're up. They're upset because yes. the Soviet Union but collapsed. Th- let's just that's why they're like, upset. This is why I keep saying it. humiliated Russia is not a positive uh, for the world. Like you know, Germany and Japan before. Before World War II started, they had something to be proud of. It was a racial history. We destroyed that. We said, that's not allowed. You, when you get too proud of your racial history, you start killing a bunch of uh, ethnic minorities and doing horrible things. Let's cut that out. And instead, we said, why don't you instead be proud of your economic prowess? And be, and let them... And now, uh, whenever uh, something needs to happen in the world... We asked Japan and Germany to be our partners in it. We asked their opinions. We asked their expertise. Mm-hmm. I think sure. Russia wants to be a player. They want to be. Um, they want to be involved. I think China exactly the same way. They want to be respected. They just want. They want to have that same sort of relationship um, with uh, the Western world. 
um, as we have with uh, Germany and Japan now, where when we make a decision, you know, we ask them first, or so I shouldn't say we, because Canada is not really involved in these discussions. More like when the Americans make a decision, they ask their they, they ask their most close allies first for their help, for their uh, advice, for their um, for their consent, even. They, they, they just want to be a respected player in the world. And I think there's a peaceful way to do that. We need to give Russia a nonviolent project for which they can be proud. And right now, we haven't done that. And so their only source of pride is in their military, in the great patriotic war, in this uh, fighting spirit. And this is the natural product of that. We need to change channels. As I said before, the only way to counter a narrative is to produce another narrative. That's what we need to do. Yes, but to, to produce another narrative, you, you, you need to take control of the situation. And I think, like, I, I just, you know, I get what you're saying. I, I have to poke a couple holes in it because I think we're, we're oversimplifying. Um, like, sure, I'm sure Russia could, if I sat down, if, if, I sat down with a Russian. They could explain to me in many legitimate ways in which they've been aggrieved by the West. Of course, the Cold War was ugly, as ugly from the American side as as the Soviet side at times. Um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, it they certainly did fall into a great economic recession. It tore them up. Uh, but you go, oh, we just need to let them. We just need to. We just need to. They were in the '90s. Boris Yeltsin and 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 Bill Clinton had a a good relationship for not for for the whole period because you know the NATO, he wasn't very happy about the NATO bombing of Serbia, as an ally of, of Serbia. But uh, they they enjoyed a, a very good relationship. They were able to talk multilateralism. They were all able to open things up. Even during Putin's uh, people forget during Putin's first couple of terms, regardless of what his internal ambitions were. Uh, you know, he was he was having constructive dialogue with the Americans, and 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 what happened is eventually Putin's like, well, that's not good enough. I don't just want to be part of the conversation, even though Russians probably did want to still be part of the conversation. He didn't want to be part of the conversation, so he he's like, let's go back to this hypernationalism that destroyed us in the first place. So he took Crimea, and now he's trying to take Ukraine. Um, and there's it's not impossible that we could invite him back into the fold, uh, or I shouldn't even say him, Russia, back into the fold. I find it very difficult. I find it difficult to see a future with him in it where Russia is back into the fold diplomatically yeah. uh, and back into the G7, the G7 becoming the G8, blah, 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 blah. Um, so that, you know, I, I think you make a good point when you say, you know, like, sure, the West has done things to Russia just like Russia's done things to the West, for sure. Absolutely. Anybody who says that the U.S. was the perfect angel is 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 bullshitting you. Uh, anybody that says that uh, Russia was a perfect angel is bullshitting you. There were horrible, horrible things done uh, during that period, and um, you know they they did. You know, it's the fact that they did re-enter the conversation, but they, in many respects halted their own progress and when you say we need to we we need to when you're saying you know we need to kind of give them a national project you mean we as the west and if if we're trying to bring them into the western sphere it has to be at least partially on our terms and i think the reason things soured with putin is because putin began to get these ambitions in his head and this nationalistic drive in his head that was not it stopped being on our terms and that's why he was kicked out of the G8 and that's why he was you know that's why all those things happened it's not because like 
the Americans just perpetually hate Russians. Um, though I fear that the conversation will now be turning towards that again, uh, like it was in the eighties after the, the Soviet Union shot down that, that passenger flight in, in, uh, that, that, that was over their airspace. Some guy made a mistake. They shot down the plane. They denied it initially. Uh, and their propaganda didn't work. So eventually they fessed up to it. And so it's, it's, we're, we're, we might very well be heading back towards those dark days where the rhetoric gets ramped up and everything Russian. I mean, we're already seeing, you know, there's a Russian musician, yeah. uh, that's had a pianist that ha- has had his shows canceled because he's Russian, even though he's against the war. I don't no. think that's right personally. And I don't want to see it go there. Um, but, and is that the West being mean to Russia? Yes. But this didn't start because the the West suddenly decided to be mean to Russia. It's because they fell out of line with, with what Putin was trying to do. And he was unwilling to, there was no way, there was no effective way for us to deter him from doing whatever the hell he wanted to do, whether it was in Syria, Crimea, Ukraine. Um, so that that's why I, I, I that, that that's something I, I, I have to, to bring up. That's, that's important we to highlight. We promised... Uh, and again, it wasn't we. The Americans, well, maybe it is we in the sense that NATO promised Russia after the dissolution mm. of the Soviet Union that they would not move. Uh, so it would not ask former Soviet states to become part of NATO. And it broke that promise with the Baltic states. There was an alternative. And I was just listening to a, a Dan Carlin's uh, podcast on this a, a little while ago. Very famous uh, American history podcaster. There was an alternative proposed after the breakup of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact that former Warsaw Pact countries would form their own alliance, their own form of NATO. So you'd see like Poland and Ukraine and the and the Baltic states to defend mm-hmm. against Russia. And they would be an independent third way, essentially, between Russia and NATO. I think that I think in many right. ways, uh, America is not solely responsible, of course, for um, the way that um, Putin has behaved. But America has acted as a first mover in some of these cases by playing footsie with Georgia, by playing footsie with Ukraine, by saying, oh, maybe we'll let you into NATO if you just beg us hard enough. But then also, uh, but also saying to Russia, we'd never let them be part of NATO. You're, you're like, they, okay, let's be honest. That's, that is what, that is the message that has been secretly given to Russia over and over and over again. It's not what we, it's not what NATO says publicly, but that, that has been expressed to Russia on many occasions. Um, but the West doesn't, we don't, the, NATO doesn't act like it. They give contradictory messages and particularly in Georgia, this is this is the case where they the Americans led the Georgians to believe that uh, we that America would defend Georgia in a attack against um, an attack by Russia, and so uh, Georgians started acting very aggressively towards Russia, thinking they had a, a clean slate. And Putin was uh, having none of that. Invaded Georgia, did the seven day invasion that I think yeah. he was hoping would be replayed in the Ukraine. And Georgia's entire yeah, defense yeah. forces were collapsed. Um, the yeah. Amer- and and like, we've sort of had the same thing happen in the Ukraine, do it in slow motion. Whereas the uh, the, the EU, um, the US with NATO has has repeatedly said maybe you can join, but also hasn't fast tracked their joining. Because again, we don't we don't want to fight over you. Like no one cares about the Ukraine. I'm sorry. Like we have many Ukrainian Canadians, but they don't have any stuff that the Americans care about. And Americans only fight wars over stuff. 
So they've they've just wanted to play footsie with that because they they don't want Ukraine in Russia's camp. They want to box away Russia, but they also don't want to defend the Ukraine. So they've really picked the worst of of both possible options here. Whereas like if you wanted if you wanted to box in Russia, you would you would have uh, Ukraine join NATO, but they don't want to do that. But they also don't want uh, uh, the Ukraine to be part of Russia. So they're playing both sides. They're, they're, they're talking on both sides of their mouths. And I think this is partially a consequence of that. Now, of course, in order to keep in power, Putin has moved in a very nationalistic uh, direction, basically to change the channel from yep. his own corruption, from his own authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. And to justify uh, giving himself more power, and let's be real, real here, more money for himself personally. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. And his oligarch buddies. Uh, so uh, he certainly bears the lion's share of responsibility. But I do think the way that NATO has acted uh, has exacerbated a crisis, and it has reduced the number of possible peaceful options. Uh, in such a critical time for the human race, and I, I do think that's a, it, it's disgraceful. And uh, we need to we need to take back the reins of this discussion a little bit, so that uh, we can we can increase the number of peaceful options of peace resolutions, not decrease the number of peaceful. You bring up you bring up some fair points about you know NATO's enroachment or or the perception some would argue I, I really don't know what side side I'm on because I I got to read more about it I'm no expert but what some would call the perception of NATO enroachment and what some would call NATO enroachment on on Russia's borders um and I think that's a legitimate point to to discuss uh where I, you, you lost me a little bit was you know about Ukraine and sure what does Ukraine have I think there's some truth to that like the the Americans don't have anything yeah, to pillage exactly right so there's way less incentive for them to drive swoop in there with their planes and I agree there where you lost me a bit is I mean I I, I do think that there is a le- legitimate desire for a partnership with Ukraine particularly in Canada who has you know and they're so quick to say it the largest Ukrainian diaspora yep. outside of Russia uh, and and Ukraine obviously. Uh, and, and obviously like, you know, sure, we don't have anything to, you know, like it's not economic for us either really. Um, but to say that, uh, I, I mean, I think, yeah, sure. Georgia got emboldened. They, they were, they were completely dismantled. That's a whole other thing. Uh, I think we didn't see a significant alignment with Ukraine. We didn't really see any, like nobody really paid attention to Ukraine until Putin invaded Crimea, you know? So that was the consequence of Putin invading Crimea. It wasn't a consequence of something the West did, that particular thing. It was a consequence of Putin's actions. And, uh, you know, then the West was like, okay, obviously we're going to stand with Ukraine. Because as you said, there's there's some truth to what you say, that they wanted to box it away from Russia. But why did they want to box it away from Russia? Because they didn't want Russia taking over it, and they didn't want Russia taking over the Baltics eventually. They didn't want Russia taking over, you know, not that they would, but that's that's the fear, right? And probably why, in part why the Baltics joined NATO. Um which, you know, is that a broken promise? I didn't, I actually wasn't aware that there was any sort of promise to Russia that, that European states, I thought it was just mostly that they were upset that post-Soviet states were joining. I didn't know that there was anything in stone, but I'd, I'd have to, to verify. Um, and perhaps you can speak to that shortly. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like some of the, yeah, Putin, I agree, Putin is the, the bad actor here, by and large, you know, he's done the overwhelming amount of, of damage. Um I, 
uh, maybe you'll have to expand more on on NATO's history with with the post-Soviet states, uh, because for me, I, I don't see how, you know, other than perhaps the Baltics joining NATO, how NATO has done anything really significant at all, and they only really buttressed their 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 troop count in in Eastern Europe after the Crimean invasion, after Putin decided to do that. Um, but yeah, feel free to to elucidate to me a little bit more, explain to me um, this There's promise. The, the promise is definitely not written in stone. It's part of the negotiations of the late and the early 90s that broke up the Soviet Union. And uh, it's one of those things that multiple people have had multiple positions on uh, what was said or spoken. So uh, just as I was reading through, I've seen multiple uh, news sources that say uh, contradictory things. Um on the position some people the russians definitely took the the russians definitely took the position that they were promised it uh the americans have waffled back and forth as to whether it was promised um and apparently gorbachev is has said mm. in recent days that uh it was never promised uh but the the, the mm. it's definitely i think at this point whether or not uh uh it was said um, it's definitely with the Russian. It's definitely the 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 Russian position. It's something that uh, it's something also that that uh, historians that I that I pay attention to in the West have repeated. So that's that's why I trust it. Um, but if they wanted to, I mean, break I do the, know that it, they very but, much. Regardless, like if you want to, if they wanted to defend Ukraine, then then they can just break the promise entirely and and have Ukraine join NATO. That's the I think that's the part where I'm mm. I'm very confused um by America's rhetoric here and like if you really wanted to defend um Ukrainian independence and you saw uh Russia annex uh Crimea just let Ukraine I don't really get why they didn't let um well, I guess Ukraine chose not to join NATO, but you you could have uh, integrated them immediately, or or you could have simply um, given one of those famous red lines, where even if Ukraine is not a member of NATO, you say that uh, we're not going to accept any attack or encroachment uh, of of Russian forces uh, in the Ukraine past this point. They they've chose not to do that, and I think they they intentionally chose uh, not to do that. They want to fight this war with words. Um, rather than anything else and that's why i think it's it's time that mm. uh we accept the reality of the situation we're not willing to fight over this country um so we need to find a diplomatic solution if we were willing to fight over this country we would have position we had you know eight years to position ourselves differently uh, we chose to position ourselves this way uh now it's time to accept the consequences of our actions which is and I and I do I do think you touched on something very valuable, and that is the uh, that is the, the the gap, you know, and, and or, or the the lacking response uh, of particularly the United States post Crimean invasion. They talked a tough game, and they imposed some sanctions, and it did hurt the Russian economy. But then that was it. And, oh, we're a great friend to Ukraine, but, like, there was no, you know what I mean? Like, there was no effort really made, not not a, a large amount of effort as could have been to in, integrate them into our circles. But it, it's, uh, you know, I, I do recognize that 
well, I'm unsure about a promise. Like I said, I haven't heard that, um, but I have to do my research. Uh, I do know that Russia is quite protective of its post-Soviet uh, states. Uh, and I say it's because it, it treats them like they're still part of Russia. And in many instances, they are quite dependent on Russia and reliant on Russia. And have huge populations it, of Russians it, it sense living because, in their countries as well. Yeah. That, well, that's that's right. And, and, and so, you know, certainly all of those things are, are factors. Um, I do agree it, at this moment, it doesn't seem like we're willing to fight a war over it. And I do think that I, I am always of the belief as a guy who doesn't generally like these kinds of conflicts or any sort of conflict unless absolutely necessary, a.k.a. against a guy like Hitler. Um, I would like to see a, a diplomatic solution. I can't see a diplomatic solution that's going to please everyone enough that you'll you'll ever be able to get them to agree. But maybe if the stakes are high enough, maybe, you know, I could be surprised. Who, who knows? Um, but I, I do agree that if we were serious about this, that we should have positioned ourselves, particularly the states should have shown leadership and positioned themselves uh, in, in a place where they could have supported Ukraine better. I do think part of it was the Obama administration's relatively, relatively weak response to uh, Crimea, the Crimean invasion. Uh, I do think the other half of it is you had this complete charlatan come into power in 2016 who cozied right up to Putin and had no desire to bring Ukraine any closer. Um, that's no fault of uh, Justin Trudeau's. He could have stepped in there to, to like, yes, he con- he, he continued the Harper government's posturing uh, to, to be more pro-Ukraine and, and to, to, to recognize that community more than they ever had. But other than that, again, what did we really do as the West? We didn't really do that much. Uh, and really in a way went backwards um with with a guy like donald trump in in the presidency and and again that could be a whole episode of podcast of a podcast for sure but um yeah i mean we're at a crossroads here um russia's red line is obviously their 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 former states uh the the former soviet union states that seems to be a, a red line for them which also makes it difficult particularly under this Russian president to bring them into our orbit because they don't even like us touching countries that used to be a part of the Soviet Union. And uh, it's um, it's going to be really tricky moving forward to kind of sort through all this. Uh, I, I agree with you in principle that the solution is to bring them further into our orbit. But again, that has to happen partially on our terms. They can't come into our orbit fully on their terms because that's just not how that works. Um, even if for some reason that would be the more rational decision, that's just not how that works. So I, I don't see a world, particularly with Putin or anybody from his wing of the party, uh, taking power and getting along with, with the West. I just don't see it. And I think at least diplomatically, possibly militarily, there's dark days ahead. Uh, I wish I could end it on a more, um, positive note, but this is the reality we're handed, we're handed. And, and listeners don't think for a minute that we are, again, that we are our military experts or strategic experts. This is just a couple of guys uh, shooting the shit and trying to figure all this out like you guys. And we happen to be massive politics nerds, so we have some background. <laughs> exactly. But I don't know. That's, that's how I'm ending off. What do you think, Jacob? What's your, what's your well, final my, word? Well, my final word is uh, I see more possibility than ever before that we could enter... Uh, a conflict that could end all um, civilization uh, on this planet. And I want to avoid that uh, as much as possible. And I want to uh, envision a world where that's not going to happen. I think that uh, we've faced such nuclear threats before. We know how, uh, uh, we, we know how we can avoid them. 
All it needs is a compromise that allows both parties to save face. I think such a compromise exists. It's just going to be very difficult to find, but I think it's possible. And that's and I hope I I sincerely hope it is. Well, thank you as always, Jacob, uh, for your candor, and that was a, that was a, a great uh, productive yeah. discussion and. and Lots of, lots of good back and forth. I hope you enjoyed it as well, listener. And uh, we thank you for tuning in to episode two of Speech from the Throne. If you like what you heard, if you hate what you heard, if you hate us, uh, if you hate any of the countries we mentioned, or if you're just bored and lonely, you can send feedback to speechfromthethrone at gmail.com. That's speechfromthethrone at gmail.com. And we'll see you in the next one. See you next week. Bye.